0: Following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore or our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Just while you're turning to Exodus 16, let me just set this up for you uh, and recap where we're up to. Last week, we looked at the journey of the Israelites across the Red Sea, that climactic moment when Israel comes through the Red Sea. And really, that point, that point in the story when Israel has crossed the Red Sea, it brings to an end uh, the first major section in the book of Exodus, which is the Egyptian period in in Israel's history. Uh, After that time, Egypt is barely mentioned. So from chapter 16 onwards... Egypt is is never mentioned as an active participant in the story. Pharaoh, the name Pharaoh, before Exodus 16, he's mentioned 115 times. After Exodus 16, three times, and all in retrospect. So Egypt just fades into the background now in terms of Israel's story, and now Israel's got a big challenge ahead. It's one thing to come through the Red Sea, but now they face the arduous trek across the desert, which would be several months Uh, before they get to this land of Canaan, the land of promise that God had given them. So it's not home sweet home yet. They've got a huge desert journey to go through, which of course is very perilous, uh, and issues like food and water become issues of survival. So that's really the next several chapters taken up with that journey. And uh, this is what we're going to look at today. They journey on from the Red Sea several weeks, and they come to a place called the Desert of Sin. That's nothing to do with the English word sin, by the way. Nothing to do with the biblical concept of sin. That's just the name of a desert. So don't read too much into that when you see the desert of sin. Uh, Let's read Exodus 16. I'll read this story for you. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in. And that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when He gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning, because He has heard your grumbling against Him. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, Say to the entire Israelite community, Come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, At twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, And when they measured it by the omer, the one who had gathered much did not have too much, and the one who had gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. Each morning, everyone gathered as much as they needed, and when the sun grew hot, it melted away. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the seventh day to gather it, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh day. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. The people of Israel called the bread manna. It was white like coriander seed and tasted like wafers made with honey. Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Take an omer of manna and keep it for the generations to come so they can see the bread that I gave you to eat in the wilderness when I brought you out of Egypt. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer of manna in it. Then place it before the Lord to be kept for generations to come. As the Lord commanded Moses, Aaron put the manna with the tablets of the covenant law so that it might be preserved. The Israelites ate manna 40 years until they came to a land that was settled. They ate manna until they reached the border of Canaan. And omer is one-tenth of an Ear. Okay, so this, if you circle back to the beginning of this chapter, it starts with the Israelites doing something that they've become really good at doing, which is grumbling. There's a lot of grumbling that goes on in Exodus. Of course, they started grumbling before they left Egypt. They grumbled when Pharaoh made life harder for them. Then they grumbled, you remember, again at the Red Sea when they thought that they were dead. They grumbled then. Uh, Then they grumbled in the previous chapter because they found some water they thought was drinkable and it turned out to be not drinkable. So they grumbled then. And now they're grumbling because they don't have enough bread. They don't have any food to eat. And it's understandable. I mean, obviously, food is essential. And they've come now several weeks out of Egypt. They would have taken some food with them. Uh, We know they took some dough with them, but by this stage that have eaten what they had, that have used up what they had, the food's either gone or it's become uh, infested and it's gone off. So they just don't have any food left. And the response of the Israelites is then to turn on Moses and Aaron, which is their usual style, and grumble against them and complain about these guys. Uh, You know, you brought us out in the desert to die. Uh, You brought us out here to starve to death. And we had this great life back in Egypt. We were sitting around pots of meat. It's amazing the way they've just completely idealized their life back in Egypt. This was just, it was like living in luxury back in Egypt. It was like a hotel back then. You know, we had all the food that we wanted. That was amazing. The grass is always greener, right? So they create this this fairy tale about how wonderful life was back in Egypt. And it's a complete contrast now with how hard it is in the desert with no food and no water. And what you expect to happen really at this point is for God to rebuke them uh, or at least punish them, maybe send a plague or something, wipe a few of them out and teach them a lesson, but he doesn't. What God does is respond with an act of sheer grace. He says, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. I'm going to shower you with my love. I'm going to shower you with mercy. You deserve death, you deserve punishment, but I'm just going to rain down bread from heaven for you. And so he does. And I think there's an echo here, maybe, to back to the plagues in Egypt, particularly the plague of hail. You know, God's saying, what, what you really deserve is the plague of hail. You really deserve judgment, you complaining, whinging Israelites. But what I'm going to do is rain down, not hail, but bread. I'm going I'm to bring a kind of like an anti-plague. I'm going to bring a, a, a storm of bread, just enough for everyone. And God does this. In fact, what he provides is two things. He gives them quail and bread. So he gives them quail as a, as a one-off provision to meet their immediate hunger. And then he provides the manna as an ongoing provision every day for the next 40 years. You know what the word manna means in Hebrew? It means, what is it? Literally, that's what the word means. The Israelites gave it that name because they went out in the morning and they found this stuff. And they said, what is it? I don't know what it is. Let's call it, what is it? That'll do, right? So based on that theory, our boys have manna for dinner every night because they always say, what is it? Uh, before they decide whether they want to eat it, there's a lot of grumbling that goes on in our household. So manna is, is just literally means what is it because they hadn't seen anything like it before. And we get this interesting description of it. There's actually quite a bit of detail um, worked into this chapter. We know that it's, it's like flaky stuff on the ground, kind of like wafers, that it's white, and that it tastes like honey. And you put all that together, basically to me, it sounds like cornflakes. It sounds effectively like white cornflakes is the best description that I can think of. So cornflakes is what God provides. When you're having your cornflakes tomorrow morning, just be thankful for the manna from heaven that God has given you. This sort of flaky white stuff, that's what he gave them, honey-coated, wafery cornflakes. And these cornflakes, they lived on for the next 40 years, cornflakes, imagine that, breakfast, lunch, dinner, 40 years. By the time you got to the promised land, you would be pretty ready for a cheeseburger, wouldn't you? You'd be, where's the pig, let's get some bacon going, let's get some hamburgers on the grill now. Uh, but it was, it was an amazing provision for the time, it kept them alive, right, this was, this was sustenance for them, even though it would have um, got pretty old pretty fast. But this was an incredible, miraculous provision from God. And and I think the significance to the manna is in the way that God provides it. He sets up this system of daily provision. Uh, Every single day, the manna is given afresh. So just to get yourself in the story here, this would be like you wake up tomorrow morning and there's no food in the house, nothing, no bread, no milk, no nothing. So the first thing you have to do is go straight to the supermarket and buy just enough, But you've got to try and get it right. You've got to try and get just enough for that day, just enough bread for that day, just enough ingredients for that night's dinner, because whatever you don't use is going to go off overnight. So you buy your stuff, and you have the meals that day, and then you wake up in the morning, everything that was left over is gone, or it's gone off, you have to throw it out, and you've got to go back to the supermarket again. So you would live a very daily existence. If you had to do this. And that's exactly what God wanted the Israelites to do. He is forcing them into a daily way of living. Every single day they had to look for His provision of their needs. And then they had to go and gather it. It wasn't just placed outside their tents. They still had to go and gather it. They still had to work for it. Work is a good thing. But every single day, God is providing the manna. And the one exception to that rule, of course, is the Sabbath. The day before the Sabbath... God gives them twice as much as they need so that on the Sabbath day they don't have to do any work, they don't have to go gather the manna. They can just be still and they can be with their families and they can worship and it's a day of rest. This is the first time that the Sabbath is introduced uh, to Israel. Uh, interestingly, before you get to the Ten Commandments, we haven't had the Ten Commandments yet. There's no, there's been, We don't have the one about the Sabbath yet. This is before all of that, but the Sabbath is introduced as a practice and it's because Israel is now a free people. A freed people can practice sabbath a freed people can work on healthy rhythms of work and rest they're no longer slaves they no longer have to work seven days a week they can now have a sabbath and so the sabbath becomes part of israel's journey And on the Sabbath, this is to be a day where they don't need to gather manna because they have manna from the day before. Some Israelites still try to. They still try and go out because they're greedy and try and get more, or they just hadn't managed yesterday's supply well enough, so they try and gather more. But God says, no, you've got to rest. Don't go gather the manna on the Sabbath. You rest on that day. But then other than the Sabbath day, every single day God is providing the manna for 40 years for Israel. And what he is teaching them above all is that he is their provider. God, through the story, is revealing himself to Israel as Jehovah-Jireh, the God who provides. That's what that means, Jehovah-Jireh, the God who provides. He wanted them to know that he is the one who will meet their needs. That they are not self sufficient. He takes away any possibility they could think that they are self reliant, any possibility they could think they are self sufficient, that they are their own provider, or that someone else is providing for me. God says, No, I'm gonna create a system where it will be unmistakably clear that I am your provider. You can look to me and I will give you enough. I'm not gonna give you too much, not gonna give you more than you need, but I will give you enough. Every family will have as much as they need. You can depend on me for this. You can rely on me for this. I am your provider. God is instilling this part of his character into Israel in this way. And then it was enshrined forever because Moses took some of the manna and put it in the ark. And then it was a perpetual reminder to Israel even after they got into the promised land. That God is still our provider. Because God knew the temptation. You're going to get into the promised land. You're going to be able to plant your own vineyards then. You're going to have your own crops. You're going to develop your own economy. Then what happens? Self-reliance. Self-sufficiency. I can meet my needs. I'm in a community that meets each other's needs. And and, and the the need to depend on God disappears. So the manna was there kept in the Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the, the Ark over which the presence of God resides in the most holy place in the tabernacle, The manna was kept in that holy place as a memorial, as a perpetual reminder to Israel, God is your provider. Look to Him, not to yourselves, not to your community. Look to Him to provide. Even when you plant and gather and run your own economy, He is behind all of that, providing, working the land, giving you animal life. He is providing for you continually. He is Jehovah-Jireh. So God is wanting to show the Israelites They can depend on him. He will be faithful. He will be enough. Now, the story of the manna also provides an important backdrop to the New Testament. As the biblical story goes forward, it gives us a perspective on the person of Jesus. It gives us a perspective on who he is. And there's one chapter in particular in the Gospels that draws heavily on the story of the manna in the wilderness to talk about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. It's John chapter 6. Just flick over there for a second. I want to talk about this chapter. John chapter 6 is where we find the story of Jesus doing the miracle of feeding the 5,000. So on its own, that story could be a story of Jesus using his power to meet a whole lot of people's needs for food. And that's, of course, what it was. But set against the story of the manna in the wilderness, it takes on much more meaning. Jesus is doing, in doing this miracle of feeding 5,000 people, Jesus is doing what God did back in the desert. God provided bread from heaven, cornflakes from heaven, for a whole lot of people in the desert. Jesus is now taking the loaves and the fish and multiplying them. He's providing bread. He is doing what God did. He is saying, I am Jehovah Jireh. I am your provider, and I'm taking you on a new Exodus journey. There's a whole new Exodus now out of slavery and into the freedom of God that Jesus is taking us on, and this is one of the ways he's showing that, by showing himself as, as the one who is now providing for his people, just as God the Father did in the desert. But then Jesus provides the interpretation of that miracle, and he, 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 he connects this, so we don't even need to guess at what he's meaning here. If you flick over to verse forty. of John chapter 6. He interprets that miracle and he says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So Jesus is saying the manna in the desert was a foreshadowing of the person of Jesus. Its immediate purpose was to meet the needs of the Israelites and sustain them physically. But in the story of Scripture, the greater purpose of the manna is a big signpost to Jesus. It's a great big signpost to who Jesus is as the true bread of life. Jesus is saying God provided you the manna in the wilderness, provided your ancestors that manna to meet a physical need and it sustained them for their physical lives. But I am the bread of heaven who provides true spiritual life to meet the deepest hunger of the human heart, the deepest hunger of the human soul. Not a a physical hunger, not a surface-level physical hunger, but the deepest hunger of the human heart, that hunger that we all have for meaning in life, a hunger for purpose a hunger for identity, to know who we truly are. A hunger that I think a lot of people have, they can't even really define it. A deep hunger of the soul, they're not even sure what it is. They're not even sure that their heart is restless, their soul is, kind of, is hungry. St. Augustine said, our, our souls are restless until we find our rest in thee. He could have just as easily said, our souls are hungry until they are satisfied by thee. That's what Jesus is talking about. There is a deep hunger in the human heart. It's a hunger for God, but we don't even realize we're looking for God half the time until we find Him. But there's a deep hunger, and Jesus says, I'm the one who satisfies that. I am the one who, who is. I don't just, Jesus is saying, I don't just give you the bread of life. I haven't got a thing that I'm going to give you. I am the bread of life. My presence, myself, I am offering myself to you as the bread who truly satisfies, who gives eternal life. And that life is both now and it's in the future. It's now in that we receive forgiveness now through Jesus. We, receive, we come into the kingdom of God now, become children of God now through Jesus. We receive peace with God now. But it's also everlasting life when Jesus returns, it goes on and on and on in the new creation with Father, Son, and Spirit when Jesus Christ returns. This life that he gives us is eternal. And this life is far deeper than just meeting a physical need. Our souls are truly and only satisfied when they're satisfied with the bread of life, who Jesus is. So Jesus is this bread of life. And interestingly, in John chapter 6, when he starts talking like this, and he starts telling people, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. You look at how people respond and what they start doing. What they start doing is exactly the same as what the Israelites did in the desert. Look at... uh, Verse 41, at this the Jews there began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Verse 43, Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. That word grumble is exactly, it's the equivalent word that's used back in Exodus to describe the grumbling of the Israelites. The Israelites were grumbling because they didn't have any bread. Now these Israelites around Jesus are grumbling. And John is telling the story. He's drawing this connection. He's saying, you Israelites listening to Jesus, you are doing what your ancestors did. Except worse, because the Israelites in the desert were grumbling because they didn't have any bread. The Israelites around Jesus were grumbling because he was the bread and they didn't want it. They were rejecting the bread that was being offered to them, the true bread, and it's infinitely worse. So John is retelling Exodus 16. He's saying there's another Exodus going on here. God's provided manna, true manna. That's himself, that's Jesus, but it's being rejected as the bread of life. People are grumbling. Now I think that story should make all of us go back to Exodus 16 and ask this question, where am I in the story? We're, now that we know the manner is fulfilled in Jesus, we come all the way back to Exodus 16 and we look at it again and we say, well, what role do I play in this story? Which Israelite, which group of Israelites am I? Where do I see myself? How am I responding to Jehovah Jireh? How am I responding to Jesus? Because is it possible that we are also playing the role of the grumbling Israelites in this story? I mean, we might have received the bread of life. We may have received Jesus into our lives, we may have received eternal life, but we still can play the role of the grumbling Israelites because we still grumble and we still complain. We may not complain directly against God, we might not complain directly against Jesus. We just complain because we don't feel like we've got enough. Physically, materially, right in front of us. We don't feel like we've got enough. We feel hard done by. We feel poverty stricken compared to our friends and neighbors and relatives. We don't feel like we've got enough money, haven't got enough financial freedom, haven't got enough financial independence, haven't got good enough career earning potential, haven't got a big enough portfolio, haven't got a good enough retirement plan. I just don't have enough stuff. And so we grumble about it. And we complain about the lack of stuff that we have and the lack of money that we have. And we live in a culture that encourages that grumbling. Our Western culture of consumerism encourages, in fact, it keeps us in a state of grumbling. So much advertising wants to keep us in a state of dissatisfaction and discontentment so that we will purchase whatever is being offered to us. I walked in the other day when our oldest boy, Josh, was watching TV. He was watching a program, and I came in, and he said to me, Dad... I think I need a new pillow because I wake up tired, sore, and grumpy. That's what he said. And I thought at the time, that just doesn't quite sound like something a five-year-old would say. So I looked at the thing, and sure enough, it was an infomercial for a pillow. And I figured out that someone on the infomercial had said, do you wake up tired, sore, and grumpy? So Josh is just parroting this ad back to me and trying to tell me he needs a new pillow. I said, oh, well, I, I agree with you about the waking up grumpy part, but you, I don't think you need a new pillow. Lawson, on the other hand, he loves the ad for the bullet. It's a blender, right? So what does a three-year-old need with a blender? But he loves that ad more than his TV programs. He just will sit in front of the infomercial for the Nutribullet, or, and you try and pull him away from it. It's a meltdown. They're already being bred as consumers, our boys. Doing a great job as parents, aren't we? But this is all of us, isn't it? To a greater or lesser extent, we are all involved in this culture of consumption, hyper-consumption, where we are convinced that what we have is not enough or is not the right stuff. I mean, you think, like your phone. Think about your phone. You're perfectly happy with your phone. It does what you need it to do. It's fine. It works. It's fast enough. But then you see an ad for the next model, phone. And then you look at your phone again. And now what do you see? This phone's rubbish. It's the worst phone It's a brick. This is so slow. Five minutes ago, you were happy with the phone. What's the difference? You've seen, you've seen the promised land. You've seen the new model, and now nothing. You have have created dissatisfaction, discontentment, until you purchase. But then, of course, there's the next thing, and there's the next, and there's a relentless pursuit of consumption that goes on and on and on. So we are kept in a state of grumbling. Similar. To the estate that the Israelites were kept in. Anna and I were talking about this the other day. We were walking along the the boardwalk at Milford Beach, and you walk along that boardwalk and you know you walk alongside all these beautiful homes, beautiful luxury properties, and I was doing some grumbling of my own as I walked along. And if you're here today and you own one of these homes, bless you. Glad, really glad you're here. But I was, you know, I was feeling a bit hard done by, but Anna was saying for her, it's, it's, not, it's not that she necessarily wants a luxurious home. It's just that tendency to want a little bit more. You know, we want just, just, just 10% more. It's not necessarily even want a new home, just the renovations of the existing home would be enough. We just feel like we need 10% more than what we already have. We don't necessarily measure ourselves against the super rich. I just need to be another notch up, a little bit more financial freedom, a little bit more financial independence, and then we'd be fine. And guess what? If you had 10% less, you'd want the life you've got now. That's the reality. We all, you will always want 10% more than what you have. You will always compare yourself to those who are just one more notch up, just one rung on the ladder, and that will always be the goal, and that is what creates a deep dissatisfaction in our lives. Welcome to the culture of consumerism. This is the water we're swimming in. And this story, I think, is why this story speaks so powerfully into the culture that we live within. It speaks across millennia into the culture of consumption in the West that we live in. Because it invites us out of that story of obsession over stuff and money, it invites us into the story of Jehovah Jireh. It invites us into the story of the sufficiency of the God who provides out of this relentless pursuit of upward mobility that just drives us and fuels us and consumes us into the story of the God who is enough. Enough. He is enough for us. He himself is enough for us, right? Because he's given himself to us as the bread of life. He is sufficient and he gives us enough. He gives us Maybe not, not, not necessarily what we want, certainly not more than we need, but he gives us enough and he invites us to be content with that. One of the practices I think that's so important for us to reclaim in this because it's, it's so lost on us is what one writer calls the discipline of dailiness. I love that phrase, the discipline of dailiness. This is what God wanted to build into the Israelites, a daily discipline daily dependence on God, daily recognition that He was the provider of their needs. And we've largely lost this because God's provision and our needs and our consumption are separated by multiple degrees. So when you go to the supermarket and you pull some cornflakes off the shelf, you don't think about God as your provider. You just think about how the Price of the cornflakes has gone up since last week. You know, we're just thinking about our immediate need. We're not connected to the God who provides. Maybe if you work in agriculture or you work in the primary industries, that might be a little bit more top of mind for you. But most of us, we don't, we just consume, consume, consume. We don't think about God as the one who's actually meeting those needs. And then add to that the fact we we don't live a daily existence. You can go to the supermarket and stock up for a week if you want. You can stock up for two weeks. We have lost the art of dailiness. And Scripture calls us back to this—to find ways, and we're going to have to be creative because it's hard. But find ways of recovering the discipline of dailyness, daily dependence upon God, as Jehovah Jireh. So one really simple thing here, and kids, listen up, because this is this is this is for you as much as anyone, is the simple discipline of gratitude. The simple practice, I mean, it's so simple, it seems almost embarrassing to mention it, but the simple practice of saying thank you to God for the things that he gives us today. Today. What has God given me today? So the practice of saying grace is one of the ways that we can do this, saying thank you to God before meals, right? The problem is in our household, grace often doesn't have a lot of grace attached to it because it usually starts with whoever's turn it is to say grace, arguing about whose turn it is to say grace, and the other person thinks it's their turn to say grace. So then that ends with a fight. Someone's crying, and we haven't even said grace yet. So then the person whose real turn it is says grace, and they just say it as fast as they can, and they forget to thank God for the food anyway, and then halfway through their grace, the other person cuts in with their own grace, because they still think it's their turn, and then there's a big fight, and Anna and I were totally annoyed, and our house is, there is no grace in our home. By the time we get to dinner so grace doesn't work really well for us for this we've got to find some other ways maybe grace is a is a more pleasant thing in your family i don't know but it is the the point of grace of course is is a daily gratitude in fact i read about one tradition where people say thank you after a meal which is not a bad idea actually thank you for the meal we have had right may 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 go either way depending on whether you like the meal or not but you know that kind of (laughs) gratitude is a good thing but as you go through the day, just think of the ways to be grateful. What do you have? What has God given you? Did you drive here in a car? Were you driven here in a car? Can you thank God for that? Do you have a roof over your head tonight? Even if it's not your own home, can you be thankful for that? Can you thank God for what you do have? Friends around you, family, your health, the money you do have. Be, be Just the, the basic practice in real time of thanking God For the things that we have in our lives. And then added to that, I think another way of practising the discipline of dailiness is to pray that line from the Lord's Prayer that we prayed together. Give us today our daily bread. That's a great line because it's so practical, it's so earthy. What could be more practical than bread? And Jesus invites us in that prayer to pray for the real stuff that's going on in your life today. You don't need to just pray for really big things, although that's fine too, but he invites us through that line in his own prayer to bring before God the very practical, very physical, very tangible needs that you have in your life right now. What is it that you need now? God invites you to pray. He invites you to ask. And you don't need to overthink it. Don't worry too much about sifting out needs from wants and is this really a want or is it a need? Leave that with God. He knows. He'll sort that out. He can do the filter on that. You just pray. Just ask God. It's okay to pray for the very practical things. If you need it, you know, it's okay to pray for a car park. It's okay to pray the car park prayer. I know some of you are a bit funny about that because hasn't God got better things to do? God is interested in every single detail of your life. He delights in being invited into the minutiae of our lives. Not just the things we deem to be significant, but the details, even the trivialities. He delights in being invited to be a part of that. Whether or not he opens up a car park, the conversation with him is a good one. So feel free to ask for your daily bread. When I tried doing this, I actually found it quite difficult. Because when you think about it, chances are, for the rest of this day, you're fairly self-sufficient. You probably know what's, what's on for lunch. You've probably got that sorted. You've got a general idea of what's happening this afternoon, vague idea of what you've got sorted out for dinner. Generally speaking, we are self-sufficient. What do you actually need God to provide for you today? See, this is the pro- we've become so disconnected from the discipline of dailiness, it's hard to even think. what, I don't know, what do I actually need God for? I've basically got it sorted out, which just shows the problem. What about just praying for God's hand of protection and safety? to be upon you and your family today. About that prayer. We've got no idea what's going to happen to us between now and when we get home. We've got no idea. Anyone in this room right now, our life could be changed by our cell phone buzzing in our pocket. We just you have no idea what is coming down the track. No idea at all. And and we can pray God invites us to pray for his hand of blessing, his hand of protection, his hand of safety upon us, our families, our church family, whoever you want to pray for. Now, let me say what I said last week. There's no guarantees. God doesn't promise that just because you pray it, it's going to happen. But he, he always responds in some way to our prayer. He loves to hear us pray. He invites us to pray. It's part of our spiritual journey. Pray for your daily bread. What is it that you need? Some of you just need to pray for sleep, just struggle sleeping, pray for sleep. Have you ever thought of actually just praying for a good night's sleep? Maybe that's your daily bread. Just praying. Not right now, but just pray. I don't want you nodding off. Just pray for what it is that you need. Pray, you know, when you're in your, when you're in your job, just praying that God would give you success in your, in your work. Praying for the business that you're a part of. Praying that it would prosper. Praying that God would bear fruit through the work that you are doing. Just pray for these very earthy things. What about if you're struggling and you're really battling? We tend to pray very big picture for those things. You know, you're battling a physical issue or a very complex work situation or what it is, but can you break that down into daily pieces? Can you think, what is it that I need today? Because it seems from Scripture that there is a dailiness to the way God delivers His blessing. God says, my mercies are new every morning. So there is a dailiness to God's distribution of blessing. And shouldn't that be reflected in our prayer life? That we learn to pray for what we need this day. God, give me the strength for this day. Just the strength to get through this day. Jesus said, let tomorrow worry about itself. Tomorrow's got enough troubles of its own. You pray for this day. What do you need for your children this day? What do you need today? Maybe it's just relief from pain, physical pain. Just God, I pray you just take the symptoms down today. Maybe it's just a bit of hope. Some of you are feeling completely hopeless. Just, God, just bring something, bring someone, bring something in this church service, bring something in that would just give me a sense of hope and a sense of your presence. What is it that you need from God today? Feel free praying for those things. You need to just feel free. to. Don't feel like you're burdening God. Don't feel like you're wasting his time. Don't feel like it's not important enough to ask what you just ask. You just open your heart to him and pray for exactly what it is you need from him today. And then leave, leave that with him. Leave it with him and trust him as Jehovah-Jireh. And one more thing, when we pray for our daily bread, we should pray mindful of those who really struggle to put bread on the table for people. We are going to pray that prayer, give us today our daily bread, in a very different way from someone who literally struggles to put food on the table. And we need to pray it on behalf of those who just don't have enough. Because we are, relatively speaking, we are the affluent minority globally. We need to pray that prayer on behalf of the poor, including the poor in our own country. Kids that are going to school hungry, parents that are working two jobs, three jobs, just to try and make it work, just to try and make ends meet. The difference between where the benefit ends and where expenses end is just wafer thin, for them, And this, is, this that's the knife edge that they live on. And there's people in our city like this. There's people in our country like this. And we need to be mindful of them. And we can pray this prayer on their behalf. Pray that God would provide for those who don't have enough. That's part of us gaining God's heart for the poor. And it will give us a deep perspective on our own stuff as well. One of the ways that we do this at grace time, when grace actually works in our family, is that sometimes, not all the time, sometimes we, we pray for the country where our food originates. So if we're eating pasta, we might pray for Italy. Pray for people in Italy. Maybe people in Italy that don't have enough. We should probably all be eating a bit more Greek food at the moment, perhaps. Pray for Greece. You know, you can pray for... And sometimes we just pray for people that just don't, that just don't have what we have. Just don't have enough. So what we're trying to do, very imperfectly, we don't do this as much as we should, but we're trying to instill in our boys a sense of themselves, it, it, where they stand in the world that they, relatively speaking, have an awful lot to be thankful for, that they can be grateful for that, and also that they can be mindful of those who don't have enough, that they can pray for those who don't have enough, and they may even be motivated, we may even be motivated, toward generosity toward the poor. So pray this prayer for ourselves, but but also pray it for those who genuinely and physically and practically need daily bread when they may not otherwise have it. So I just want to leave you with this question, of do you know God as Jehovah Jireh? You know, he's known by so many names in the Old Testament, and Jesus is known by so many names in the New. But do you know God as Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides? Do you know Jesus as the bread of life, the one who truly provides eternal life? Are you relating to him that way? I mean, we relate to Jesus as our Lord, as our Savior, as the one who died for us, those are all good things. But do you know Jesus as the bread of life? Maybe you've never tasted that bread. Maybe you've never even received Christ as the bread of life. I want to invite you to reach out and receive that today, to receive Christ as the one who truly satisfies the deepest hunger of your soul. I want to invite you to pursue a relationship with Jesus today. That invitation is there. He offers himself to you freely as the bread of life to satisfy the hunger in your soul. And for those of us that do know Jesus, this passage should jolt us out of the story of consumerism that we are so accustomed to. We have no idea how entrenched we are in the narrative of consumerism. One writer says that consumerism is the functional theology of most Christians. We come to church, we sing the songs, I believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and we go out and we live the story of consumerism the rest of the week. This is so often the way, I know it's true in my life, but I want to let this passage challenge me. I want to let it be more than a nice children's story that tells us that God meets our needs. I want to let it confront me with Jehovah Jireh and and really challenge me with that question, is God enough for me? Is He truly enough for us? And is His provision enough in your life? Uh, Do you find yourself grumbling and complaining? Uh, Do you live with that dissatisfaction and discontentment? Are you willing to return to God and discover Him afresh? as Jehovah Jireh, the one who provides. Are you willing to build into your life some habits of dailiness, some practice? And they're only going to become instilled in our life if they become daily habits. Otherwise, it's all going to be gone by next week. The only way to get this in is to build daily habits and rhythms into our life. Are you willing to develop a habit of daily gratitude? Are you willing to develop a habit of daily asking God to faithfully provide what you need and praying that prayer, praying the Lord's Prayer on behalf of those who don't have enough? Let's celebrate God as Jehovah Jireh the God who truly provides and lets experience his sufficiency, the sufficiency of his grace, the sufficiency of his daily provision in our lives. Let's pray. And then we're going to enter into communion. God, as we think about your provision for the Israelites in the wilderness, and God, we turn now and we come to the table and we take this little piece of bread and we take this wafer Jesus, we we want you to remind us again that we are eating and drinking eternal life, that we're eating and drinking of your grace, and and we long for your grace to be all sufficient in our lives. Lord, many many of us have received that eternal life from you, and yet we still just live with this discontentment in our lives. We still just live so caught up in what we have or what we don't have, so distracted, by stuff, so obsessed by lifestyle. God, we just want to put it aside. God, we just, in this moment, maybe a moment of clarity, we ask that you would give us the courage to tear down the idols in our lives, even if we've made idols of our money and our possessions. God, lead us back to you. We thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, the God who truly provides, the God who is truly enough. May that not just be a name that we speak but the lives that we live before you and in the sufficiency of your grace we pray it in Christ's name amen this has been a teaching message from shore community church for more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry or for more information on Shaw community church visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.